Just a few moments, we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. I just want to remind you why God gave us the Bible. The Bible's given to us for one main purpose, and that is to teach us how to get to heaven from here. It is to tell us how we can be reconciled with God. We're all sinners. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. Every one of us. No one had to sit us down and say, here's the day I'm going to teach you how to lie. and Tomorrow I want to teach you how to lose your temper. <laughs> Came very natural to us, didn't it? Because we have a human father. All of us have that same uh, sinful nature. The Bible says when Adam sinned, so then death passed upon all men for all of sin. One thing we all have in common, regardless of the pigment of our skin or our origin, what nation we're from or what our social status is, we all have Adam's DNA in us. And we have a propensity and an attraction to disobeying God, to sin. That's why Jesus had to be born without a human father. If uh, Joseph or any other man would have been the father of Jesus, well, he'd been a sinner just like us. But the whole testimony of Jesus is that he was innocent and he died for us, the guilty. And uh, re eternal life is not a reward for doing right things. It's a gift for understanding our guilt and the need for the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's the main purpose of the Bible. You say, what's the main theme? Is how that sinners like us can be reconciled with a God who's not a sinner. And then after we know that, then there's lots of things God wants us to do to tell us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right. The Bible's given to us so we can change. The greatest agent of change known to mankind is found in the pages of the Bible. God wants to change us. You're not what you ought to be. I'm not what I ought to be presently or ever have been. But if there's anything going to change good in the life and times of John Wilkerson or your life, you must Give attention to the Word of God. God loves you, and He wants you to have eternal life, but He also wants you to have abundant life. And if you're not, if you're not living the abundant life, it's because you do not have the relationship you should have with God. And you'll never have the relationship, and I'll never have the relationship I'll have with God until I have a relationship of a love affair with the Word of God. We should love it. We should read it. We should study it. You read your newspaper. You read the magazine. You study your Bible. You should study your Bible. You should think about the Bible. Think about it. Meditate on it. And then whatever God tells you to do from the Bible, do it. It's going to go against your nature sometimes. But boy, when you find out what God wants you to do, just do it. Uh, every once in a while I'll say, Pastor, the people say, it's so hard to get to church. I said, we don't start till 9.45, good night in the morning. And they, can be at, they can be at work at 5.45, Monday through Friday, and then get to church at 9.45, four hours later, it's like an act of Congress. I wonder why that is, because it's spiritual. It's spiritual. The issues, well, I just don't want to go around and sit around with your hypocrites, but they'll go watch the Cubs play. <laughs> they'll go watch the White Sox. They'll go to work, and there's a bunch of hypocrites there. All of a sudden, it doesn't seem to bother them there. They go shopping at Walmart with a bunch of hypocrites. Doesn't seem to doesn't seem to affect them. We use all kinds of excuses because our nature is against the God of the Bible and the spiritual atmosphere that God wants us to have. But I'm so glad God gave us the Bible. 39 books written before Jesus came, 27 written after he went back to heaven. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the Gospels that uh, tell us about Jesus. The book of Acts is a transitional book that tells us about that what happens in the lives of believers after Jesus goes back to heaven. Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. Acts chapter 2, his Holy Spirit comes down and infills Christians. 
Chapter 3 and beyond, uh, his disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God go out and begin telling people about Jesus. All of us are here because someone obeyed that command and someone was filled with the Holy Spirit of God and told us about Jesus. And then people begin to come by the thousands in this early church. And there's a lot of things that happened in the early church that, that took place. We find that there was, a, there was a great benevolence and giving among the people. There was a great love. Uh, there was great persecution. As you look at the book of Acts, you'll see there was prayer, then there was power, then there was preaching, then there was persecution. It was a cycle that you see that people began to pray. God's Spirit filled them. Uh, they went out and told people about Christ, and then Satan and uh, his imps and others in society began to persecute them and give them a difficult time. And then they went back to prayer, and they went back to power, went back to preaching, went back to persecution. It seems to be a cycle that's going on. In Acts chapter 5, we see that uh, after many miracles have been done and the church has grown substantially, God wanted to make sure the church was pure. He wanted to make sure the truth was prevalent. And he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. And then there was a few more challenges. And then after chapter 6, the church had grown. And there had been some uh, disgruntled people in the church. And problems began to surface. In the best church you'll ever find, you'll find problems. Why? Because there's people there. And you'll find structural problems and you'll find social problems that will surface in the hearts and lives of people in church. And the more people, the more... Don't say that so loud, would you? But the more people, the more problems. And they had a lot of people. And the more people you have, the more problems begin to surface. And the more you get the gospel out, the more adversarial work you have to deal with. And it's a spiritual work. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities. And we see that being played out in the scriptures here. After they kind of held, dealt with their problem, the word of God increased, souls got saved, more people came, and persecution came. And the first deacon, Stephen, a mighty man who loved the Lord, he was a layman in the church. He wasn't the pastor. He was there just to help the pastor. Our brother, friend, brother Clarence Sexton says there's two positions open in church. Number one is to pastor a local church for God. The other one is to help that pastor pastor a church for God. You're either pastoring or you're helping a pastor. The nursery workers are helping the pastor lead the people and work with your people who are unsecure. You're helping people. People who run the buses or drive a bus, who, someone who's an usher. We're all just helping each other do what God called us to do. Well, the church began to grow, but persecution came. And the first martyr, Stephen, was killed. And under a pile of rocks, the Bible tells us in chapter 8, that persecution comes, and any good church who is getting the gospel out is going to suffer some difficulties from time to time. We learned that lesson. Don't be surprised whenever you go to a church, and the church, it seems like it's going forward, that Satan begins to attack the church. That's what happens. It's a reality. I don't like it. Uh, you don't like it, but that's reality. Well, as a result of that, this man passed away, and under a pile of rocks, Devouted, devout, devoted men who could have gotten stoned themselves pulled the rocks off, took the beautiful body that was bludgeoned and beaten and covered with rocks and no doubt bruised and they wrapped his body and they took him and they buried him with great mourning. And they didn't care what people said about them, what they were going to do. They, they were devoted. And boy, how the church needs devoted men and women 
who are just, they, they're, not, they're not really swayed by, the, by popular opinion. They're not always licking their finger and find out where the winds of popularity or decisions. They say, you know what, if God wants me to do this, I'm going to do it. And the Lord's going to help me. And devoted men did that. And uh, as a result of Stephen dying, now they're looking for other deacons. And another deacon, his name is Philip. There are seven deacons that were chosen to help the pastors there in the church of Jerusalem distribute food primarily to the Hellenistic Jews and the widows there. But the next one was Philip. And the Bible tells us some insight about Philip. Philip had four daughters and a wife. And uh, I don't know if he took them with him, but he had a home, no doubt, in Jerusalem. But he found himself being looked after by the, by the, the, the Jewish police who were, had already killed Stephen. And so I believe that he went probably into the Samaritan neighborhood. Samaria was a place where they were half Jews, half Assyrian, and they didn't worship the same. They didn't have the same culture. As a matter of fact, they didn't mix well. The Jews and the Samaritans had a real angst with each other. There was great prejudice especially on the Jewish part, but it's also on the, on the Samaritans. Now, Jesus poked them in the eye continually while he was here. You might remember the man that was beaten down the road to, Jer- to Jericho, and the priest passed by, and the Levite passed by, and, but one man stopped and had compassion on him and poured in wine and oil and helped this man and put him on his own, own horse and took him to the hotel and paid for the hotel, and he was a good Samaritan, I'm sure that every time the disciples heard that, said, could you change the story, please? Jesus said in John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria. And they were probably saying, please, can we go around by the Jordan River? It's a lot nicer walk. A little longer, but we don't have to be with the Samaritans. He said, no, we've got to go through there. He tells them about healing ten lepers. And when all of them were healed, they all were excited. But only one came back to thank the Lord Jesus for healing him, and he was a Samaritan. So Jesus, when he went back to heaven, he said, now listen, you're going to be filled with power. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll feel, and I want you to be witnesses both simultaneously in Jerusalem where you live and in Judea, in the area right around you, and also in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, don't just stay in one location. You need to be concerned about the whole world. I think even when David killed Goliath, he asked, is there not a cause? Isn't there a cause? And when he got ready to kill Goliath, he said, that all the earth may know. God is a global God. He's interested in global conquest. Say, Pastor, why do we come to church and have to hear about missions? Years ago, a banker came, and he started coming. He enjoyed the services. But then he scheduled a point with me and said, Pastor, we won't be back to church. He said, I said, he said, well, I said, okay, is there a problem? He said, well, he goes, I don't want to come to a church. I want to come and just hear preaching. I don't need to be stimulated by all this stuff about missions. He said, you're, you're like making it like everybody ought to be involved with missions. He goes, I, I just want to come and listen to the word of God. I don't want to be, you know, giving me all the stuff going on about missions. He goes, that's just beyond me. You know what his problem was? Materialism. <laughs> it was going from his, his heart to his pocketbook, and he didn't like it. Because you can't love without giving. When you get a heart for God, God so loved the world that he, he gave. And boy, God doesn't want us to be comfortable in this lifetime. He wants to be pilgrims. He ought to be kind of pushing you. 
You know the job of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> well, it'd be always stimulated. What does God want us to do for the things of God and for the help and for the, for the sake of eternity? And so Philip leaves Jerusalem and goes up to Samaria, and there he begins to witness. And people see what he does, and they hear what he says, and there is great joy because of both. By the way, people see what you do. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he said, you're the light of the world. Let your light so before men they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. One of the reasons we want to work hard at our, our workplace, young ladies raising children and keeping house and taking care of things. One of the reasons you want to do a good job as a young wife and mother, and we can see it in the Bible as it speaks in the book of Titus and, and Timothy reminds us that when people hear the word of God, they'll not have a reason to blaspheme. They'll, in, they'll attract, they'll be attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ, not a from, because of our testimony because we handle business right, because we're honest and upfront, even to our own detriment at times. Listen, whatever you do, it's not just about you. It's about the gospel of Christ. Whether it be mowing your lawn or taking care of your car or loving your family or paying your bills or being honest with things, it's not just about you getting an angle on something. It's about you representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you do and what you say, if people don't trust you, they won't trust what you tell them. You ever try to witness to a boss that you have not been a good employee? You'll be a lousy witness. You ever try to win someone to Christ and influence someone when they've heard you tell dirty jokes? They've seen you laugh with the best of them? They know your mouth, they know your conduct, and you're trying to witness to them? How well is it going? No, our life is important. And they saw Philip, and they heard Philip, and they received the gospel of Christ. Verse number 8, would you look? Here's the result of that. By the way, look at it with me and read it with me. Verse 8, and there was great, what? In that city. By the way, when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they have forgiveness of sins, a byproduct of that is joy. And I am so glad. I'll never forget the day that I accepted the gift of eternal life. And I never forget the joy that came to my heart knowing that my sin was forgiven, that I have eternal life. And I'm not going to spend a second in hell, though I deserve to, because of the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. Well, there was great joy in the city. But the Bible's going to tell us a little bit about one particular new believer. And he has a very deep and dark past. He has been in sorcery. His name is Simon, and he is a, he's got some deep furrows of sin that he has plowed in his life. And they deal with witchcraft and pride and control. And as he goes into this area, we find in Samaria, this pagan, pagan area, he has convinced the people that he has got special powers and made himself to be of some great gift that God has given him. And his name is Simon. Let's just study a little bit about Simon this morning. I think there's some things we can learn about the local church through the story of Simon. Now, some people will say, well, Simon is not, he's not really ever saved. Or he was not, he was not really a believer. Or he was saving up. I don't know about all of that. I would tend to give Simon the benefit of the doubt that he truly did accept Christ. But he had some real issues prior to his salvation. And some of us have that. 
Oh, maybe you haven't been involved with sorcery and witchcraft, but you've been involved with pornography since you were a child. You've been given alcohol since you were in your baby bottle and someone, someone thought it was funny to get you drunk when you were a little kid. Some of us, we've gone through all kinds of messes prior to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and some even after knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and getting involved with some very sinister and wicked and sinful things. Well, this guy had some problems. Let's look at it real quickly and we'll point out a few thoughts. We're in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 9. That there was a certain man called Simon who before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria. He, he, he deceived them. Giving out to himself was some great one. Everybody admired him because of he had deceived them and thinking that he was all that in a bag of chips. Verse number 10, the Bible says, To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man has great power of God. He said, he said even the, the, the leaders of the day and those who the, just the common person on the street admired him for what he could do and what he had done and how he had deceived them. Verse number 11, and to him they gave regard, they respected him. Because of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip's preaching and the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When Philip came, joy came to the city, freedom came, and people began to see that, that it wasn't about an individual or a, a personality or a power that someone had, whether it be demonic or, or even divine. He heard that salvation was not going to be in a trick or a magic show or a miracle. It was going to be in the person of Jesus Christ. Philip didn't come talking about how great he was. He came talking about how great Jesus was. And when they heard that, they believed. And then they followed the Lord in believer's baptism. If you've been saved, that's what you need to do. If you haven't been baptized after you've gotten saved, that's the next step of obedience you need to do. I love it when people get baptized. It's a public expression of a private decision. Had an opportunity to see someone get married yesterday and perform the ceremony. And after the vows, we say, are there rings to exchange? And they give rings. And rings are just a symbol of those promises. For all of us in that room that got to hear their vows and see their wedding, we were there when it happened. But for the many people who will see them after that moment, they'll but look on their hand and see a symbol that they made a promise and they took a promise. And that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you any more than a wedding band makes you marry. It doesn't make you marry. If you go put this on a four-year-old, does it make them marry? You just put a ring on, doesn't say you're married. What makes you married is a promise, accepted and made. What makes you saved is taking the promise of eternal life. But the symbol that tells everybody else that you're saved is when someone follows the Lord in believer's baptism. When they go under the water, they come up out of the water, picturing the death, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. It shows a picture, it's a symbol, it's a public testimony of a private decision. And they got baptized. But the Bible tells us not only did the people get saved and believe and got baptized, but Simon did too. Let's look at the Bible, if you would please, verse 13. And Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs that were done. So Simon also, the Bible tells us that he believed the preaching that only Jesus could save him, and 
He followed the Lord in baptism after he got saved. He said, you know what, I believe that. And he got baptized with the people. And then he did something very smart. He continued to follow Philip around. He started following Philip, going to places. And by the way, if you just got saved, you need some help. And friend, if you are a believer and you have someone who got saved, they need some help. I'm not uh, the best at doing that, but I love Anish. And I had the joy to show Anish how to be saved. And since that time, we have spent scores and scores of hours together. Discipling, coming to my house, meeting somewhere, making visits. And I'm not the only one. Other people have done that as well. You know why? He had some deep furrows of wrong, stinking thinking. He thought that there were millions of God. Now he knows there's just one. He didn't know that God had a son. His name was Jesus. Now he knows. But he had to have someone to walk him through that. And we find that Simon, he went and found, found Philip. But Simon had a problem. He still had an old Simon inside of him. He still had that, he enjoyed the attention, the respect, the admiration that the community gave him. And he was thinking he wanted to have his old ways as well as the new way, is my opinion. Let's look and see what the Bible tells us. Look, if you would please, at verse number 14. But he follows Philip around. He was pretty, he was pretty amazed how Philip was helping people and uh, doing miracles that were used of the Lord to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent it to them, Peter and John. So there was news that there was a revival going on in the neighborhoods of Samaria. And whenever they heard that, the disciples said, well, listen, maybe Peter and John, they were the two of the leaders. Go up there and see what's going on in Samaria. And because you remember, though Jesus told them to be witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and the and Samaria, other parts of the earth, they had stayed central in Jerusalem. And they were struggling with their prejudice against others. They wanted the salvation to be, in their mind, was for the Jewish people first and foremost, and maybe only, exclusive. Jesus never wanted that. He wanted us to cross pre uh, prejudice, uh, bias, and he wanted the whole world to hear about Jesus. And we've got some prejudice going on in here this morning. I've had it in my heart. You may have it in your heart. And if it's there, it's sin. If there's anything we know about God, he is not a respecter of persons. And it's something we all got to deal with. And it's fostered by pride. But they go and, and they make their way up to Samaria and they see Philip. They knew him. They served with him in the, in the church of Jerusalem. And now he is up there. I don't know if he's got his girls with him and his wife in that community. But there he is. And sure enough, it's proof. The Samaritans have uh, received and been followed the Lord in baptism. Let's look at verse number 15. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet were fallen none of them, only they that were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. This is a little bit unique, and once again, this is where I see the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the book of Acts, is a transitional book. I think here, uh, when you get saved, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that the moment we believe and receive Jesus, we're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Here, they were transitioning, 
And I do believe that probably this was more for Peter and John and the disciples and the Jewish believers than it was for the Samaritans. But God needed to convince them, like he would convince Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. Hey, listen, this is a special thing. Believe it. Receive it. Jesus loves everybody, and the Holy Spirit has come equally to the Samaritans as he does to the Jews. He's trying to teach them some things, and if you don't agree with that, I understand that. We can argue about it, and if you want to, you can meet me out in the street after the service, and if I'm not there in five minutes, start without me, okay? Because we're not going to go there, but uh, we can still agree to disagree agreeably. Look, if you would please, at verse number 18. But when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying to Peter and John, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. He had seen this miraculous thing take place with Peter and John coming, and he thought to himself, How much money could I give you that you could give me the power to give them the Holy Ghost? And we'll see that God really quickly rebukes him. But he's got the old guy still stinking, sitting inside of him. He's still got some stinking thinking going on. He still thinks that it's all about him and him being admired and respected. And all of us struggle for significance and security before salvation and after. We want to know we matter. We want to know that we're going to be okay. And, and before all this came, before Philip showed up to his neighborhood, he was the talk of the town. Everybody reverenced him. And now the, 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 the culture has changed. Now it's not about Simon, it's about Jesus. And he himself seems to believe and receive it as well. But he's kind of used to the attention. He's used to the, uh, the affection and the admiration he was getting before he came to know Christ as Savior. And now he sees something and says, you know what? Hey, I used to, how can I do this your way, the way, the way God given the Holy Spirit? Can you give, I'll give you some money. Can you teach me how to do it? And we find that, uh, that Peter and John uh, rebuke him sharply. Let's look at what happens there. We'll conclude our service today in just a moment. Verse number 20. And Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee. Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not what? Right, in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be given thee. For I perceive that thou art in a gall of bitterness, and a bond of iniquity, he still had the stronghold inside of him. We find that he called him to repentance, a restoration, not a condemnation. He said, you ought to turn. The Bible tells us in verse 24, and, and then answered Simon. Simon says back to him, pray ye the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. I think it's very interesting here. We see the M.O. of Simon. His mode of operation was it's all about him before Jesus we find that, that in, in addition to that, we find that his motives were impure. I think he was saved myself. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he believed, and God tells us he believed, and he got baptized. But he had that old motive inside of him. He had that old world coming in. By the way, you know, the Bible tells us, Genesis tells us the beginning of the human race with Adam and Eve, the beginning of the Israelite race with Abraham and Sarah. 
When he finished Genesis, you have the book of Exodus. And that's the exit, how God got his people out of Egypt. Then God gave us Leviticus, and that shows us how to get Egypt out of his people. Many of us, we got a lot of Egypt in us, don't we? We have a lot of worldly thinking. We got a lot of selfishness and bad motives going on. And Simon had that too. And you know, I love this story because it shows me that God is very gracious. He rebukes him sharply. And I love the response. The mandate mandate was repent. You're in a glow of bitterness. And he didn't do that to condemn me. He did that to restore him. He said, you turn. You change your attitude about this. You understand this. You don't buy power with God with money. That's your old life. That's not the way God rolls. You buy the power of God only with faith and obedience to God, purity and holiness and prayer. So you're going to do this a different way. I love his response. He said, he said Peter, please pray that God won't have this happen to me. Everything, I'm in the gall of bitterness. I'm wrong, but pray that he'll have mercy upon me. I see a responsive spirit after that. By the way, if you're in the wrong as a child of God, admit it and quit it. Confess it and forsake it. Ask God for his mercies. His mercies are new every morning. If you find yourself in a bad situation, you're a child of God, but you're living like an unsaved person, do what Simon did. Humble yourself. Say that you're wrong. In verse 25, the Bible says that upon that rebuke and upon his repentance, that Peter and John went everywhere in Samaritan villages telling people about Jesus. God had used this not only to bring up a new believer in Christ, but to bring a new leader in Peter and John. God's always at work. Is he working in your heart right now? Wherever you find yourself this morning, I pray that you'll look to the Lord. If you're here and you're not sure if you were to die, you go to heaven. Don't leave this room without Jesus. Don't get out there and get in your car and try to get away from here. Don't run from the presence of God. He loves you. He wants you to have eternal life with him. If you've been saved and you know you've accepted Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to come and follow the Lord in baptism and do what God wants you to do. If you're a child of God and you're not living like a child of God, why don't you just quickly admit it and quit it. Come to God and say, Lord, I'm sinful, I'm wrong. I pray you have mercy upon me. Don't bring judgment, bring restoration. I believe he'll do that. I joke around about this, but I remember years ago, my dad was a disciplinarian, my mother was a disciplinarian. My dad was very firm. He'd always get me around the backside. My mother didn't give a rip. She would get me wherever. She'd just have a belt, she'd be like that. And I found out that I would do a lot better with my mother if I got up close to her when she was spanking me. The farther away I got, the more leverage she had and the more it hurt. So when my mother would spank me, I'd just run up close to her and get hold up to her. And she's like, like that. It just didn't hurt as bad when I got close to mom. You know, whenever you're sinful, don't run away from God. Run to him. Oh, it's still, we deserve discipline, but it doesn't hurt as bad when we get close to him. He's a very merciful, loving God. Get close to him. Don't keep going in sin and living like an idiot. Come to God and say, God, I got a lot of Egypt in me, and I want to get that out. I don't want to continue in this bad motive, this bad way of living. I want to live in a holy way, in a repentant way, so that you can be used of God uh, in this day and in years to come.